I always feel like we should have some banter, but it's already recording. We can do banter in person. You're a busy man. You've got an insane output. You can banter, Ethan, and then I can decide whether <laughs> to include it or not. That's true. That's up to you. <laughs> but this is a busy man right here. You know, this is somebody who does what? You do two. 1500 word investigative pieces every week. I mean, I don't want to disrupt such a workflow. It seems quite prolific. Actually, this is incredibly inconvenient. I, I need to be writing right now. <laughs> <laughs> do it again, do it again. Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. Welcome to the House of Strauss. I am thrilled to be joined by Lee Fong of LeeFong.com. It's very easy to remember, Lee, your Substack. Uh, one of the greatest investigative journalists going currently and someone with a lot of interesting thoughts who I, I could have had you on for a variety of reasons, none sports relatedly. Uh, the only tangential connection is that we keep saying we'll play tennis and we never do, uh, but yeah. nonetheless... No, those, we have two sports connections. One is that mm. we keep promising to play tennis and it never happens. And mm -hmm. two, I feel like, you know, not to goose you up too much, but I don't Ooh. care about sports. I want to care about sports just to connect with my fellow man. I mm. don't. But every time you talk about it and I read about it on your Substack, I'm fascinated. You do a great job just explaining the dynamics and telling interesting stories and actually keeping my attention, which for basically all other sports content, you know, I, I just can't do it, so. Well, that's very nice of you to say. Um, and I will add to that, I did not know I would be so interested in Burning Man. A, I did not expect you to write an article on Burning Man, about going to Burning Man. I didn't expect to be so interested in it. And I think what you just said right there about connecting to your to your fellow man, you were making a little bit of a joke, but that is a need people have. And um, to set the table a little bit for the listeners, uh, you probably know about this, but there was a big to-do at Burning Man this year. There was something of a flood, a rainstorm, and mass media fears about catastrophe. Uh, Lee was on the scene, enjoying himself as a just as a participant. He survived. He made it out, and he wrote about it. And I, I just, I love the article, man. I, the, again, we might not talk about sports. We're following what interests us today, but I, I thought there was a lot there. And I just want to give you the right kind of uh, launching pad to discuss it. But what I found intriguing about it is that in a way it, you were presenting Bernie Man as sort of the respite for the sort of discourse that was so acrimonious and, kind of evil and wanting bad things to happen to people. And you were saying, hey, I know what the reputation of this place is. Uh, I'm sure it's not perfect, but it's got a lot of nice elements and you helped me see it in this fresh light. Well, thanks. You know, I, I was there and, you know, I've talked to several folks, including you, about wanting to write a little bit more about my opinion, about observations, about society and culture. Really, my entire Substack and my entire writing career has been just kind of ordinary old school investigative reporting, news reporting. I don't do a lot of analysis or personal essays. I want to do more on the Substack, And, you know, just coming out of this 
moment coming out of Burning Man, a lot of people, not just family, but you know, including family, were writing to me saying, hey, uh, a lot of readers were saying, hey, you were there. I mean, this was crazy. Are you okay? Did you get out? And I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to write just a very short thing about the experience, what I think attracts people to Burning Man and how the whole social media and old media hysteria and scheidenfreude about the suffering at Burning Man mm. was a perfect opportunity to, to push back and just kind of compare and contrast the two. Because if anything, you know, I came out of this feeling like this was a great week. You know, it, it was su super fun. It's just it's like a fun experience. But the social media hate and the media kind of, you know, gleeful bashing and almost like excited anticipation of mass suffering yeah, was such a strong contrast with the experience at Burning Man. Like, I'm not a Burning <laughs> Man fanatic. I'm not like one of those people that make this part of my identity or talk about it all the time or pretend that it's more than what it is. You know, some people say that this is such a magical experience. It teaches us lessons to change the world. Don't believe that at all. Are there certain dynamics that can be useful in our, in our interpersonal relationships and how we view the world coming out of Burning Man? Yeah, perhaps, I, I suppose. I mean, it is really unique. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just you don't have internet there unless you know someone with a Starlink or you go kind of go to the very edge of the desert and you get like maybe a little breeze of <laughs> cell phone mm. connection and you, you might get a second of of, uh, of messages on your phone, but you truly disconnect. It's a, an event that's obsessed with personal connection, with real life human bonds that you form with strangers every second. I mean, for me, I'm a little bit of an introvert, so it, it takes me a day or two to acclimate. You know, you walk through the festival, the event, whatever you want to call it, people are constantly coming up to you it becomes contagious. You start coming up to people, you introduce yourself, you hug, you dance, you high five, you gift, you receive gifts. It's that's it's, it's, it's more than just music or drugs or whatever other kind of debauchery you'd like to get into. I mean, there's a lot of kind of normie mm -hmm. basic stuff, like just like poetry readings and, and workshops. It's, it's really choose your own adventure, but the entire culture that brings people out is this hyper connectedness, this complete abandonment of polarization or partisanship or the outside wor world talking about, you know, what you do for a living, what's your station in life, you know, who do you know, you know, th this kind of pecking order that kind of forms the, the basics of most of our human relationships. All of that's wiped away. It's very, uh, it's, it's poor etiquette. It's extremely poor form to bring up any of this type of thing at Burning Man, not to even discuss politics of any form is basically, mm. you know, discouraged on a strong level. I mean, you still see it on the edges. Some people have I saw one or two Black Lives Matter flags, a few Ukraine things, but it's, it's very rare. And basically no one talks about it. Uh, it's a world without politics. It's a world where everyone's basically equal. I mean, of course, it's a fantasy. Of course, there's a barrier yeah. to entry. There's a high ticket cost. You have to spend several hundred, if not like a thousand dollars on you know, your housing situation, whether that's a tent or, you know, pooled RV or whatever. But at the end of the day, when you get there, it's, it's, it's the opposite of the online world. You aren't dunking on anyone. You aren't, you know, scanning 
the crowd looking for the enemy of the day to quote tweet. You know, it's mm. you're not you're not you're not searching for this moment of ridicule. It's a very earnest event. I mean, I can't even think of anything in America or in the world that's this earnest. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, just to see the contrast of people seeing the the flooding, the rain online, you know, not just making up facts, Ebola, people with hazmat suits, uh, whatever, God's judgment from people on the right, and and, and condemning and, and and hoping for suffering. You know, there's just kind of a, a gleeful a- attempt to place the festival in some kind of prescribed political battle like oh these are rich people these are libertarians oh hey look grover norquist goes oh hey look this vc funder that everyone hates went there therefore let's let's hope for them to suffer like this this whole dynamic that is incentivized on social media doesn't exist there and it's just like to see that on social media and to experience burning man for a week is such an incredible clash that if anything the hate made me appreciate burning man more it's like i was feeling good coming out of it but then getting caught up on my phone it's like actually it was very good <laughs> to compare the two so, so wait a second so you you mentioned that were you aware at the time it was happening at all did you have a little starlink that there were people who were celebrating what looked like it could be a potentially mortal disaster in the way that people were celebrating those uh that crew that went down to see the titanic and this odd schadenfreude that you see people participate in were you aware that was happening around this event you were at well initially no i mean friday as it rained although it hadn't really gotten out yet friday about how bad it was and i didn't have Mm -hmm. internet but saturday I, i took a little hike and found someone with starlink and got caught up and just let some family and friends know that hey i might be stuck here for a few extra days um not might not come back on time and with, with that, I sent a, a few tweets saying, hey, this might be fucked. So maybe I added to it a little bit. <laughs> but then I also did a follow-up saying, you know, actually people are in good spirits. It's fine. Um, so I tweeted a little bit. I, I entered the virtual world for a moment. And then I, I, I lost internet and didn't see anything for another, you know, 30 hours until I had hiked literally five miles through the mud to the highway and gotten onto a bus. And then I got very much back online because I'm on the bus and hadn't been on the internet for a week. So getting caught up on work emails and watching all the social media, you know, people like Eve six and uh, random people on Twitter, who knows who they are, were quote tweeting my tweet with many millions of views, uh, you know, hoping for disaster, hoping for suffering, hoping for, for death. And it's like, I don't know, really the, are they just doing this for clout? Probably. Do they mm. actually sincerely believe this? Probably not, but maybe. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's one of the darkest aspects psychologically of our current moment. I know other times in the past were dark. I know people participated or would go to summary executions in the Middle Ages, and we could name a list of things. But there's something about watching almost the internal psyche of somebody uh, cheering this on because it's not just this and this thankfully went 
in a very benign direction, but we've seen situations where it's not benign and people do die. I mentioned the Titanic. Uh, I remember there was a lot of hooting and hawing over uh, MAGA anti-vax people dying during the pandemic, that that was funny to some people with some very large followings. Um, and there's just something to that celebration of human suffering as a performance that does seem novel and especially dispiriting right now. It, it really, it really has an impact on me. I almost go back to when I was a little kid, uh, reading Lord of the Flies, watching it when Piggy gets killed, and I'm just, oh my god, this is so wrong. This is just not. This is not okay. It's that that sort of sense, and so maybe it was something that was always in us. Um, and it's part of the human condition, but there is something to the way it is enabled on social media that I don't know how you feel about it, but I find it destabilizing when I see those moments. Yeah, it's certainly part of the human condition. It's not new, but the technology is new. Like to have a social media platform where cruelty and mobbing and you know, there's almost a strong incentive for public ridicule or gleeful celebrations of other suffering where, yeah. you know, you receive kind of points for it, you know, likes or retweets. And it's an entire game like that's new. That's that's never existed in our history and especially to this degree. And, you know, I wonder about the different parts of human psychology that go into this. I think part of it's just kind of the simple FOMO, like seeing other people have fun. Yeah. It's like, well, fuck yeah, them. You guys, I'm not, I'm you guys are the it. cool people. Yeah. No, I felt a little bit of that. Like you talk about this event and I think I would like to be wearing some elaborate uh, headgear out there and, and being on a bicycle in the desert, but you know, nobody, no, Lee didn't invite me. So here I am, you know? In the suburbs, it's actually my loser. fault that you're not there. You know, the whole <laughs> tennis thing was a ruse to keep yes. you away. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, I didn't get to check out the Titanic. I mean, these are these specific instances. I didn't get to check out the Titanic. I didn't get to go to Burning Man. So I want, you know, a pox upon these, a pox upon these people. And that's, that's certainly part of it, but it's just... I, I was naive before the invention of this technology that so many people would want to be seen as the type of person who would grave dance in such a way. It would never have occurred to me that people would want to be seen like this uh, back in 2006. If you had presented it to me that such a thing would happen, I think I would have found it inconceivable. Well, I, I'm in, I'm, as I'm sure you are, a lot of different group chats and you know, friends there were saying, you know, Lee, if I didn't know that you were there, I'd be grave dancing on this on Twitter right now. Mm. <laughs> you know, like you know, it's it's I think it's just like it just seems like the other, you know. And mm. of course, it's fun to bash on celebrities or Instagram influencers or rich people who I, I, I gather were there. But this kind of idea that 75,000 people who were at Burning Man were all part of this glitterati of Hollywood and Silicon Valley, it's just. I mean, the people I met, I'm sure those people were there. You're like, I have no idea. I mean, the anonymity at Burning Man is strong. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone's got these costumes. No one personally identifies who they are, really. Um, I'm the lame norm normie. Who, I don't have a fake identity. I just say I'm Lee <laughs> when I meet people. Mm -hmm. But like I'll, most people do have like a fake identity there. 
everyone's kind of equal. No one gets preferential treatment. And, you know, once you're there, you know, I've talked to a lot of people. I mean, I spent some time with someone I just met there who uh, went to the army and just finished college, you know, using his GI benefits, uh, some recent college graduates, quite a few artists, people who were just kind of regular middle-class Americans, a retired couple uh, or approaching retirement couple from Alaska who just, they want to try all kinds of different things in the world. They just went to Antarctica. They've they've, they've traveled recently in Africa. You know, this is the next thing. They they don't even do drugs or drink. They just wanted to experience something new and they just seem like normal people. (laughs) Like like this idea that this this is like a a conclave of, of just Paris Hilton and, you know, people from the, the top VC funds. It's, it's just, it's not reality. It's not reality, but I think maybe you see a lot of that reduction happening because we are information drenched uh, and it's almost a sorting mechanism. So not only is it fun to hate the outgroup, um, I think there's an aspect of just trying to simplify everything. It's hard to envision what 75,000 people are like, and it's more fun to envision, I don't know, some sort of archetype that you can shake your fist at and get angry at. And you see this sort of thing happening from both sides all the time on social media of effectively, uh, you could say it's not just nut picking, but or straw manning, there's almost something else going on um, where there's a dehumanization that takes effect that I think in part is motivated by these dark aspects of the human condition we're discussing or basic tribalism, but also just as just a sorting mechanism because we have we have too much stuff flying at us. No, that's true. People want a simple narrative. And, you know, you can conjure or scrounge around for the details that fit your pre-existing storyline that you want to tell like something that i pointed out in my piece and that i saw floating around social media had been recirculated many times was this scandal huge burning man scandal from 2012 2013 of a very rich tech guy who charged like sixteen thousand dollars for his own little hotel club there and flew in models and people were like aha see this is another class society these are rich techies that are pretending to have an egalitarian socialist utopia, but really this is a, you know, gilded, roped off elite event. It's like, no, if you followed any of these stories, this was like one camp more than 10 years ago. When it came out, the people were kicked out and that that practice was rigorously banned and it's still talked about as something that should never happen. It's like this like extreme anecdote that does not represent anything at Burning Man became the thing that gets circulated in these moments because people want to believe that it that it's some kind of you know comic book villain experience where people are just dressing up and and completely pretending I, I'm sure there is some other level of inequality at Bernie man that maybe I, I don't know about but this this kind of nut picking as you mentioned of taking an extreme example that to, to make representative of the whole even if it's completely dis- disingenuous and and not reflective of any reality, that's very, I think, comforting for people on Twitter. They need a mm. simplistic enemy. Any kind of nuance or explanation of what goes on at Burning Man, um, they're not interested in. They they, they want a yeah. boogeyman. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly relate to the skepticism or the cynicism. I, I was very familiar with the Berkeley co-ops, and those always descended into some sort of 
decadent dystopia. And so one of the <laughs> things that I took away from your article that I found so interesting is, hey, it's imperfect, I'm sure, but in many ways, Bernie Man does look like a lefty utopia. And it just made me wonder, is such a thing possible if it's temporary, that you can achieve egalitarian utopia so long as you have a few parameters and it's temporary? And it, it just seems like it's part of this whole this whole conversation because a lot of the people who are resentful and were grave dancing were also people who are political lefties. There's just so much going on there. I'm not even giving you a good formal question, but those are thoughts bouncing around my head as you uh, as you describe it. No, I think about this very question a lot in the last few days. It's like, what does the left want, right? Like, I, I agree that this Bernie Man experience for a week cannot, can't be translated to society for lots of reasons. It does kind of overlap or butt up against human nature. People are naturally more selfish and mean, and there are predators that will exploit people's weakness and take advantage of them. And if you don't have the right set of checks and balances, um, you're going to, it's going to lead to abuse. But for a week, people can play make-believe in a way that is nice, that is fun to experience, that is actually representative of the values that the left not like talks about nonstop. You know, I, like I would love to compare a democratic socialist of America meeting uh, of which I've been to several in San Francisco and and in uh, D.C., it's like, you know, if you go to these leftist meetings, they always devolve into name calling, into accusations, into really petty personal disputes. And not to say that there there aren't any there isn't any of that at Burning Man. I just it's it's the it's the place where you see the most kind of uh, equality and freedom where no, there isn't a big pecking order. It doesn't matter what job you come from. It doesn't matter what age you are. I mean, this is a, an event with a lot of people who are in their 50s and 60s hanging out with people who are in their 30s and 40s. Um, there isn't this rigid socioeconomic or class barrier. You know, you go to all of these leftist meetings, it's all college-educated people. They, they talk nonstop about working-class uh, dynamics, but then <laughs> how many, how many high-school-educated people are there at, at these lefty meetings? Very few. Yeah. And I don't know about the educational background of people at Burning Man. It just, it just never comes up. No one's kind of like name dropping where they went to school or using esoteric academic language, you know, as like a class signifier. You know, people will drop really big words that <laughs> the average person has no idea what they mean, I think, as, as a way to kind of differentiate their position versus others. I mean, you don't see that that kind of that fancy talk <laughs> at Burning Man. It's really just like, hey. Mm. You're biking past me. Let's get a grilled cheese together. Or do you want to swap gifts? Or you come to my camp. We're ha we have a happy hour in an, an hour. There's no money exchanged. There, everything's free. Every party is welcoming. People beg you to come to their tent party with them. It's it's almost overwhelming. You walk down any street in the kind of temporary city, and inevitably you will be pulled into a party. Uh, it's the most welcoming um most warm experience. And again, I don't think this can be replicated in the rest of the world. Maybe some tiny aspects, you know, could be learned from or something, but it's, it's what the left talks about wanting, but can achieve because they can't even achieve, achieve, can't even achieve it in their own little group meetings. So it just seems strange that the, the self-identifying far left 
people are the quickest to ridicule this, to, the quickest to kind of simplify this as just a playground for the rich. You know, yes, it skews a little bit more high income, but it's, it's just, it just it doesn't comport with with the reality on the ground. Yeah, I think part of it is that professionally political people seem to be unhappy. Um, it does not seem to be a good pathway towards happiness to be involved in politics. There's social science saying that people who are more on the lefty end tend to have maybe greater rates of depression. I think there are a lot of theories that we could have on that. I think there's a more of a sense of being burdened uh, by guilt if you're on that side of the political spectrum. So maybe that's part of it. I, I don't know. I'm wondering, though, when you come back from the desert and you come back to San Francisco, a place that has its issues currently, the Bay Area writ large, are you looking at it with fresh eyes? Is it informing any perspectives? I mean, I'll throw this at you right now. Um, is San Francisco too big to fail? Can it get back on track? Uh, I know this is a contested space where people say there's the Fox News rendition and depiction of it, and maybe it's not that dystopian, yeah. but it's certainly it certainly has its issues and you do stand a good chance of having your car broken into uh when you park at a variety of locations um what is your thought on san francisco and the bay area right now you know is it too big to fail i think that's a good question and I, I believe the city is approaching a big budget shortfall but it doesn't it seems like it's such a wealthy city with so many powerful citizens that it can withstand any major shock. So without a shock that forces fundamental reform, you know, there's mm. a litany of problems with the city. I mean, the, you have a weak mayor, the city charter is just a mishmash because, you know, we, it's in California, it's very easy to amend the city charter. So lots of conflicting, <laughs> uh, uh, basically city constitutional amendments are in there. It's a city that delegates lots of power to these, fairly unaccountable and Byzantine commissions and boards. So you have, yeah. you know, these, I think dozens of commissions and boards that govern various parts of the city that it's impossible kind of, or very difficult for them to coordinate and solve any kind of big intractable problem. Um, some of are related to crime and homelessness and addiction, but others in terms of just like, you know, clean streets and, you know, well-functioning parks, it's, it's, it's a mess. And, there's so much money in the city that, you know, the city withstands various shocks that other cities could not take. And so there isn't mm. this kind of reckoning moment where city leaders and citizens look at the various problems and say, hey, we, we've, we've, we need a gigantic overhaul of how the city is run. Um, it's, it's not just the money, too. It's, you know, perhaps because of the culture and the politics, uh, there are so many well-entrenched interest groups, and I, I use that term broadly, I, I mean, just like the highly organized neighborhood commissions and, you know, the NIMBYs, the the folks yeah. that really want to preserve uh, their the, the kind of aesthetic and style of, of their neighborhoods. I mean, San Francisco, despite being a very, you know, left city in the, in the popular culture and the narrative nationally, in some ways, it's very conservative, small C. They don't a lot of neighborhoods refuse any type of change, whether that's changing the name of a bar or just adding a new building. They really want to keep things to how they were in the 90s or in the 70s, you know. So butting up against the various 
industry interest groups, labor unions, neighborhood groups, the kind of sprawling city bureaucracy, um, it doesn't seem like there's going to be any big change on the horizon. That being said, I mean, the, the elections last year, you know, recalling the DA, uh, recalling the San Francisco school board members, the elections of fairly moderate to even almost conservative uh, city supervisors, what we call the city council, um, that was kind of a watershed moment. There are, are some new kind of advocacy groups that push, they're pushing for reform that haven't existed before. You know, there've been rich people who dump money in, in like maybe a, an a la carte election. For the first time, there are organizations that are kind of permanent, moderate political groups that are doing neighborhood mm-hmm. organizing and media work and candidate recruitment for more long-term change. These just popped up in the last two years. Um, maybe that will have some effect, but it's butting up against uh, a lot of forces that are resistant to change. Yeah. Um, I'm not smart enough to figure out how it all shake out. I suspect that it's too big to fail. I suspect it's too scenic. The housing stock is too great. Um, some of the ultra rich people who effectively run out of me, Mark Benioff, is the most powerful private citizen in San Francisco. I think you actually could lay a lot of the problems at his feet. And I wonder if such a person eventually says, hey, we've got to go in this direction that's a guardrail against uh, some of the slide. Um, The one that concerns me as someone who lived in Oakland for 15 years and doesn't currently, I mean, for people who don't know, Whatever the depiction on Fox News is of San Francisco, that that is the reality in Oakland. Like that's that's the best way I can put it. Where it is bad right now. It is bad. I know a lot of people listening might think, well, I associate Oakland with having a certain crime rate and having issues. Uh, what's happening currently is just unlike anything I've ever seen. And when you talk to people. You know, police officers or just people who have been in these communities for a while. Yeah, maybe the murder rate is less than what it was during the crack epidemic, but just the amount of theft and robbery and chaos um, is just completely spiraling. And that is one I'm very worried about. And I don't see how that gets fixed. Some of these forces you're talking about that could reverse what's happening in San Francisco. I don't know. I don't know. So uh, what is your perspective? What is your perspective on the Oakland situation and this uh, very sports sports heavy podcast that we're getting into currently? <laughs> um, it's it's fucked. I don't know. It's It seems very bad yeah. in Oakland. And actually, there's a San Francisco dynamic to Oakland. You know, without diving too deep into this subject, but for many reasons, a lot of the San Francisco billionaires, some of them very lefty, some of them not, but responding to lefty pressure from employees and the culture and social media and perhaps peer pressure from, you know, the foundation world. It's very insular in these big philanthropies. Um, A lot of tech money, wealthy trust fund money from San Francisco has been donated, especially since 2020, to very radical groups in Oakland that are shaping the policies there that arguably are making the problem very, very much, much worse. Um, So like the groups that are fighting uh, to abolish the police in Oakland, to discourage any type of 
criminal enforcement of the law, uh, groups like the quote unquote anti anti police terror project, that's funded by people like Mark Zuckerberg. That's an Oakland group mm. uh, that gets its money from big foundations in San Francisco. That's directly affecting um, the the livelihoods, the 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 kind of culture in Oakland. And so you have kind of this this bleeding effect where it's not just Oakland, of course. You know, the big San Francisco donors are funding a lot of the radical groups all over the country in Atlanta and Minneapolis, but also in Oakland. So just across the Bay Bridge, um, you have these groups that I don't think represent the average working class person or middle class person in Oakland. You look at East Oakland, the most impoverished um uh, the most kind of, you know, uh, marginalized part of the city, uh, chronic crime and unemployment uh, issues. Their city councilman, Lauren Taylor, uh, has desperately begged uh, for more resources for the police, for, you know, a better job going after these people doing the carjackings, uh, doing the, the kind of organized burglaries you're seeing all over the city, really just begging for more of a police presence for more police resources to respond to 911. You know, there was a crisis in Oakland where, you know, if you call 911, nothing happens. They, they don't have enough people yeah. working the phones. Um, so the city councilman who represents the most working class, most African-American part of that city, you know, he's begging for more resources. Yet, if you look at the activist groups, the ones that are funded by, not that it particularly matters, but they're, since they're so obsessed with racial politics, it's worth noting, they're funded largely by white billionaires. But these kind of, radical leftist groups that are very steeped in identity and and what have you they don't seem to re- represent the average Oakland resident but they've an outsized influence on the city council on you know organizing rallies to to maintain these policies uh, on attempting to cut the, the police budget over and over again and really delegitimizing policing so it, it, it hurts police civilian relations if you if, you're con- if you have these activist groups yeah. constantly co- claiming that police are terrorists and you should never contact them how are you going to solve any crimes? I mean, they're affecting the way that citizens view the police and that affects how, you know, police can carry on their jobs. You have this dynamic and it's, it's, it's kind of the kind of outgrowth of inequality that you have these billionaires fueling uh, what is essentially a class war that poor and marginalized people are affected the most by crime. And the activists who are, who are propagating this problem are funded by the billionaires in San Francisco. That's just fascinating, and I wonder what they get out of it, and I wonder what sort of sense of guilt. It's this perverse sense of guilt that manifests itself as destruction, um, and those dynamics psychologically just yeah, it just doesn't even make sense. But I think there there could be there could be a rebuttal to what you're saying, which is that Pamela Price, who I guess you could call her the chaser of Alameda County, Alameda County, uh, Oakland and Berkeley are cities within it. It's a very large county with uh, quite a high crime rate relative to other large counties in America. And uh, she is from the same group that uh, got Chesa, uh, Chesa, however you say his name in there, but she's on a six year term and her presence is at the very least correlating with just a complete disintegration of uh, any semblance of law and order. Um, But she was voted in by the more working class communities. And so 
is there any way to reconcile that with the theory that this is more top down and the working and poorer classes oppose it if Pamela Price is in there uh, on account of those votes in the suburbs voted for the more normie Democrat candidate? Well, I I don't want to get any facts wrong on on this podcast. I think it's a mix, though. Like I think Berkeley, you know, Berkeley is part of Alameda County. There are more affluent areas. About, yeah, down so, like, sixty are those suburbs. Yeah, right. No, I, I get. It. I, I think that there was mixed support and opposition for Pamela Price. I don't know the class breakdown, but I don't think it was all rich or all poor people. It probably was a coalition. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I don't think anyone paid attention to this election. Yeah, it was a low relatively low yeah. budget campaign, not really covered in the media, absolutely overshadowed by much bigger elections going on over all over the place, the big midterms. Um, it, it, it wasn't on the radar. She got some key endorsements. And I think for there's a lot of political science that shows that for uh, down ballot races, endorsements make all the difference because people don't really evaluate the policies yeah. or the backgrounds of the candidates. They just kind of look for mental shortcuts for who to vote for. Uh, that's part of it. Um, also, uh, I, th- I think she had, I believe she had more money than her uh, opponents that probably made a difference. You know, I, I don't know. I, I think people are now evaluating it. What's, what's interesting now is looking at the dynamic of the recall. Um, it's, a, it, you know, there's a big rally I don't know when this will air, but on Saturday, I think uh, the 10th or something um, in Oakland and a lot of community leaders from the more working class uh, sections of the city, uh, the the Chinese American community, they're they're leading uh, this effort to recall Pamela Price. Um, where will how this will shake out? I don't know. Maybe it'll be a reprisal or re- uh, it will be a. A, a, a redo of what we saw with Cheza in San Francisco, where a, a lot of the opposition to Cheza came from more working class communities, especially immigrant communities, Arab communities, yeah. Asian Americans, especially Chinese Americans, leading that recall effort. Um, maybe that will be the case in Alameda County. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, Chinatown's been hit hard over the last few years. And I think there should have been, there, there should be more reporting on it. And I mean, this is a problem you often talk about where there's this ideologically motivated reporting from the major institutions, but you can just look on Google Maps at Oakland Chinatown right now and compare it to 2019, and you'll think that it was subject to a bombing raid. I mean, it's it's visible how much it's deteriorated in terms of buildings boarded up, graffiti all over the place, vacant um, it's just truly astounding what's happened there. And, uh, I, you know, it's, it's just, it's an interesting time to live in just because I don't know if people can adjust their models for the result of certain forms of idealism when it doesn't, when it doesn't work out. Something I liked from you, for instance, that I just don't hear enough of you're on a podcast and you said that you were supportive of Prop C in San Francisco, which was meant to address the homeless problem, but that you could conclude that it did not work, that it only had gotten worse. And I thought to myself, I almost never see that from any particular person these days. Nobody, 
nobody updates their model. Nobody goes, hey, I, how did this work out? I try to practice what I call how did that work out-ism. Okay, how did it work out? I thought it was going to go this way. It didn't work out that way. Now I'm adjusting my model. Maybe it's because we can curate so much of our entertainment to reflect back whatever we want. But even when people face dire consequences that are visible, I don't see them adjusting much of their sense of right and wrong and their morality overall. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's uh, downstream from the Internet. Once you kind of stake your reputation on a strong opinion and then make it permanent on the Internet, it's very hard to back down without being discredited. Mm. But to be a thoughtful person in public life, especially someone who interacts and comments on public policy and politics, I think it would actually it would be, be much better for the discourse for us all to kind of just <laughs> concede where we were wrong. Like I, yeah. I, prophecy I think was largely well intentioned, poorly formulated, and has not worked. You know, this for your viewers is you know it was a big tax. Uh, I believe in 2018, where you know the city changed its model to like a gross receipts tax raised hundreds of millions of dollars to help house the homeless, but it was very focused on a housing first model, kind of anti-shelter. Let's not focus on getting people into shelters. Let's get them into permanent housing, condos, that type of thing. Um, I mean, we're spending more money per capita on homeless in San Francisco than anywhere else possibly in the world. And it's, I mean, the, the, the results are clear. Like the homeless population has basically stayed the same. You know, it, it hasn't resolved the more fundamental issues around housing that's too expensive to build because of CEQA and other state laws. That's that's a separate conversation. But it's just it's worth reflecting. It's like, OK, this this didn't work. <laughs> you know, this is now part of the yeah. city charter. How do, how do we how do we change this? How do we fix this? How do we actually look at the problem in a more detailed way and try again? Um, doesn't mean we have to repeal it wholesale. Maybe there are parts of it that are worth preserving. It's a very long proposition. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're wrong sometimes. I don't know. Like, I, I remember when I was graduating college, a big part of my political identity and what kind of got me into politics as a teenager was opposing the Iraq war. And as part of that was like just looking at Bush's surge of troops um, in the kind of more Sunni Western parts of Iraq and thinking, OK, any more troops, that's wrong. This will only make the problem worse. But you look at the history of the Iraq War. Um, there's a million things to critique. Uh, mm. A lot of things, a lot of bad decisions, oh. a lot of decisions that killed people. But the surge, actually, in retrospect, seemed to work. I remember. <laughs> I remember thinking as you did. I remember thinking as you did to that point where I was very much against the Iraq War. And you feel so validated when you're a teenager and all the powers that be are saying something's a good idea and you don't think it is. And then it works out disastrously. So you instantly conclude, well, now I'm correct about everything. Exactly. I mean, that's just obvious. And I felt the same way at the, the surge was happening where, OK, well, here we go. You know, here we go again. Another terrible idea. And it, it, it seemed to have worked out and such things such things happen and you should be open to them. But it, it doesn't appear that we're in a culture right now of having a sort of reckoning of what went wrong. I do think to a certain extent that happened with the Iraq war, not to the satisfaction of 
people uh, running the variety of liberal blogs at the time and the Daily Coast and Digby, they, they probably would say that these people weren't held to account. I mean, they weren't thrown in jail and and whatnot, but there was a sense of, okay, we got this wrong and we got that wrong and here's how it happened. We're emerging out of this whole massive, just whatever you want to call the pandemic, multi-year, we're kind of waddling out of it and there's no real... I think sense of, okay, what were we right about? What were we wrong about? How do we do better in the future? It almost feels as though we're living in a perpetual present where people can't even or don't even look back in part because of what you're saying about reputational harm and also just this constant stimuli that we're all, we're all in this river of stimuli and that 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 to me is unsettling that it, it, at the very least we should learn something coming out of this, but it doesn't appear to be what's happening. Yeah. And it speaks a little bit to the polarization that we're talking about earlier that you don't, not only do you want to, do you want to avoid admit being wrong for online reputation reasons? You don't want to admit that your online enemies might've been right. Oh, right? you don't want to say that that's even worse because then you're saying, yeah. Oh, the worst people on the internet were actually yeah. right. You know, I think that, that that reflects a little bit of the Bernie man thing, but especially the homeless and addiction and mental illness crisis in San Francisco, because so many conservatives and Republicans have vilified San Francisco in sometimes very cruel ways. You know, the way people talk about yeah. San Francisco and about these people suffering on the streets can be horrible. But for ah. the left in San Francisco, the worst yeah. thing they can do is, is admit that, hey, some of our policies have failed because that means that in some level, people. in some form, that the bad people are right. Ooh, it's so terrible. I want to interject, too. <laughs> That's another schadenfreude instance from the right that I do not like. I do not like when I see people on the right and right-wing Anon accounts enjoying some of the chaos that's happening in the cities and doing the whole thing of, well, they voted for it. They oh, voted for horrible. it. It's, it's, it's the same it, thing of the Bernie man. Let, let them like, I'm, I hope they suffer. Yeah. It's the same dynamic. It's like, it's gleeful. It's, it's celebrations of human suffering. Like it's, it, it's unspeakably gross. I, I don't know, but it, you see it every day on, on Twitter. Yeah. It's terrible. I'm uh, it's, it's, I, I, I wouldn't encourage that. And I would say that, I think it's in many ways shameful that the conservative movement, Republican Party, aren't really offering much in the way beyond pointing at these uh, these cities. And it's almost like they feel no sense of any responsibility uh, to really show up for the job and provide a counter message. Um, but, you know, I would such- like for them to be in charge, like just given the. This the partisan sorting that every big city is now run by a Democrat or a liberal and rural communities are tend to be run by conservatives. You don't have an opportunity to swap. Like I'd like to see a lefty in charge of a rural community. I'd like to see a right winger in charge of a big city that has problems like the problem in San Francisco and see what they actually propose and do, because it's so easy to sit on the sidelines and point and laugh and ridicule your political opponents, but to actually govern and propose solutions to something else. And at the end of the day, I mean, this is, in San Francisco, you know, I, I came to the city with the more traditional left perspective that this, these were all socioeconomic issues. It's just the cost of housing and employment. Not to say that those, those aren't dynamics. They are. But you talk to the people on the streets. You, you spend time in the Tenderloin and in Soma. 
I don't know the percentage, but a very large portion of these people are severely mentally ill, are severely addicted. They have a disease. They need help. They need intervention from the state. And that butts up against a lot of the kind of orthodoxies on the right, because there's been this, you know, for the last 30 years, 40 years, this libertarian mindset that the government should not step in and provide mental health services, should not provide people, um, you know, psychological treatment centers, because that's not the role of government. They don't want to spend the money. They don't want to raise the taxes. And there's a portion of the left that actually agrees with that because they, they see any kind of mental health services as a form of incarceration. So even though they hate each other, there's a left-right kind of horseshoe effect where they both kind of throw their hands up mm. and don't do anything about it. And they don't actually provide the services that are needed. I mean, back to the Prop C issue, it treats the problem as just a housing issue, not a mental health crisis, not an addiction crisis. These people, there are people who need to be on antipsychotic medications that need intervention uh, for mental health workers uh, they need to be taken to facilities where they're given treatment so they can get back on their own two feet. I mean, if, if, they, if they're severely diseased with addiction and schizophrenia or in a bipolar state, it, it's inhumane to just leave them there. Yeah, it's inhumane. And then there are real questions. It, it challenges some of my priors as we say, hey, how did it work out? You know, what was your assumption going in? I think I was somebody who was predisposed towards drug legalization. I still don't want a draconian solution. I don't want people thrown away for a long time based on their based on their own addictions. But when I see what has happened and I see the results of fentanyl and I see the results of meth, I go, yeah, I think these should be kind of illegal. I don't know what to what degree, right? I don't know exactly what the policy should be and if it should be more dealer based uh, as opposed to user based. But the this is fail the the decriminalization is failing the how did that work out ism test. And again, it would be nice if there could be some sort of adjustment in response to events. But I think you really identified it. You really hit the nail. The idea currently that you will validate the enemy, um, that is just something that is unconscionable. And, and, and sometimes the enemy really was being an asshole, but in their assholishness, they might have arrived at better policy than you did with your empathy and your love. The enemy, in just having cruelty in their heart, might have been providing a structure systemically that was greater for the flourishing for society than you, whose morality is predicated on the idea that you are a better person because you feel more. That right there, I think that's especially hard to swallow. It's very hard to swallow. And it's also the case that we all think that our political enemies have malice in their heart, when in reality, everyone thinks they're doing the humane right thing. Yeah. You know, like you talk to right wingers conservatives and they think they genuine i've met quite a few that genuinely think the left wants to destroy america with some kind of diabolical chaos plan that will rip us apart and allow for some kind of communist takeover i mean it, it sounds silly but people genuinely believe this when they consume enough right-wing media and there are leftists who see ordinary conservatives as racist nazis who just want to incarcerate everyone on the basis of race or you know drug use and it's it's a, both sides have a fantasy of the of the other. Um, I'm sure on the edges some of these people exist, but that's not yeah. really the mainstream at, in any way in this country. You there's there's a lack of good faith of just saying, hey, you know, 
we've got some solutions. The other side does too. Let's evaluate it in a completely objective, kind of cold, hard, fact-based way. What we're doing in, in the West Coast of the United States, in Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Oakland, is truly an experiment. I mean, maybe in, in Vancouver and Canada, it's kind of similar. But you look at the rest of the world, no one does what we do. I mean, we have an extreme libertarian state where you can smoke meth and fentanyl in front of a cop in San Francisco and nothing happens. And at the same time, there's no government intervention that forces you, if you're severely mentally ill, into a, a you know, a psychological, into a psych ward. Um, you know, you look at other drug decriminalization experiments in the rest of the world, they don't have the other side of you know, dynamics that we have. Look at Portugal, look at the Netherlands. You know, I, I've, I've been to the Netherlands and, and, and went to some of the kind of supposed open air drug markets. There's tons of cops there. They do arrest mm. dealers. There, there's, you know, a very strong state that pushes people who are publicly mentally ill into psych wards. We don't have that. You know, what we're doing in, in California is is unique. And so it's, it's to say that, you know, this is the only solution or the most humane solution. How do you know? You know, this is something we're just experimenting with. You have to kind of compare and contrast other models. I truly think that part of it is a sense of morality, maybe displaced from religion, that is on the basis of I'm a better person than you are because I am more indulgent towards uh, those suffering in the society. And I don't have to think about it any longer than that that's that's what it is you know you'll see people who feel this way often accuse their ideological opponents of being garbage human beings or just being bad people i see that i see that happen a lot um and it it, it is i think in a way based on to bring it back to the internet and social media this idea of a performative morality and having to show other people who you are and it sort of displaces having to have an actual politics. And so I think that's part of that's part of what's happening. We're having an experiment and I think it's half baked and it's half baked because for whatever reason, it just matters what you feel and what your intention is and your most utopian view of what should happen and nothing else really needs to hold that viewpoint to account. I think that's completely right. It's just, it's a lot of things. It's also that we live in a society where no, we no longer go to church. We don't have community groups. We don't have, you know, you know, sports leagues, really. Even our tennis match doesn't actually happen. We just talk about it. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've no community. So in, in the absence of community and, you know, when you, when you go vote, you've, some politician promises the world you know, cheaper healthcare and college and housing costs and ending wars. And it never happens, you know. So, you know, you kind of lose touch with your community on a small level in terms of your neighborhood, in terms of, you know, the people around you, you lose touch with the political system because nothing seems to change. So how, as, as, a, as a virtuous person, as someone who is, you know, earnestly interested in being good and being good to society, what's the best way to do that is to project your virtue on the internet constantly and, and maybe bully your coworkers or family members into your worldview, even if your worldview doesn't really matter. Like if you call someone a garbage human being over and over again on the internet, you know, maybe you've hurt their feelings, but have you improved the situation on the streets in San Francisco? Have you improved the situation anywhere? You know, uh, it's, it's not clear, but it might give you, it might fill that kind of hole inside of you that you don't have a community you, you don't mm. feel connected to actual politics, but you need to do something. 
Yeah. And obviously it's a foolish way to try to project morality. The way to do it is by having nuanced podcast discussions <laughs> as everybody knows we're going to Burning Man. I mean, that's the way that's the way to do it. I mean, it's just not an effective not an effective uh, methodology. Um, you're just in this very interesting position. I don't think we've really done enough to pump up your work, which I think is highly non-ideological um, and is interested in just how power is exercised. I think one of the themes of your work is how consent is manufactured. And it, it sometimes happens in these just ways that you wouldn't expect. Uh, for instance, Anheuser-Busch having a bar for Washington, D.C. lobbyists that was quite a nice looking bar, by the way. And I felt a little bit like reading about Burning Man, where I was going, oh, man, I want to be a D.C. lobbyist. <laughs> this seems this seems so nice. But, um, you know, that's it. We, we don't necessarily have to get into your variety of pieces, but I'm just trying to establish that you you kind of don't exist anywhere politically. Do you feel that way? Do you kind of feel like you're this amorphous truth to power shoe leather guy pumping out these investigative reports? Or do you feel like you still have a general orientation? That's a good question. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like a lot of people as a teenager, I felt attached to the far left, maybe not like other people as I, got into college, I kind of hated the far left and, and wanted to be part of something bigger, be part of some kind of institution. I went to work for Obama's think tank, Center for American Progress. It was very kind of establishment. After working there for a few years, hated it, saw it as inherently corrupt, that people were cynical and duplicitous and, you know, low-key just kind of those people at these elite institutions in D.C. held normal people in contempt, you know, like it just, it rubbed me the wrong way in so many ways. So I left that, gr gravitated to lefty journalism, you know, The Nation, Vice, Salon, what have you, other magazines, had my own blog, and then worked at The Intercept, which was this kind of far left media institution for the last eight years, and really kind of became alienated with that whole world as well, that it was actually more insular than the establishment democratic politics I worked in, in my early 20s, that you know, if I thought that was elite, this was super elite, you know, everyone mm -hmm. kind of went to private schools or Ivy Leagues, they would talk nonstop about the working class and people of color and marginalized communities without having any real connection to these communities would kind of refuse to talk to them if they had any kind of evidence of wrong think or wrong speak, you know, obsessed with political correctness, to the point where they were distorting reality on a daily basis, especially on, on these more hot button issues like identity politics or policing where, you know, the reality does not always comport with the far left rhetoric. And so I don't know, I'm, I'm not like anti left now. I'm not conservative. I'm not anything. I'm really just kind of trying to find my own path. I'm trying to explain how power works. Um, I, I investigate uh, big corporations, special interest groups, but also foundations and the, the media and look at all these kind of power centers and how they shape public policy and public opinion and try to just put it out there. I, I, you know, I, not to say that I'm like some kind of perfect journalist that I have completely above, you know, any kind of bias. You know, I have my own values and, I, and obviously that is reflected on some level of my work, but I really want to hold everyone um, accountable. I, I want to look at both big political parties at, at these 
these foundations on, on both sides that really have so much power in, in, in influencing the advocacy world and you know what we see in the universities. It's it's all interesting to me, and it, it is kind of like a, a niche that I've carved out, but it's something that I think is important in terms of my journalism. It's fascinating, and it's unlike what anybody else is doing, um, and I would recommend subscribing to it. I have a few grab bag questions uh, related to your position, uh, your unique position, because I think most of your social milieu is out of that lefty journalism space, and you still retain a lot of friends from there, even though I think some of them turn their back on you for your various wrong things, but you're still in it. And I think people from outside that space, um, they call it woke, they call it whatever, they have a certain model for what the people within it are like. Can you give us any sense for people outside that world? What what are the people inside it like? You know, like what are they <laughs> how close minded are they behind the scenes in private? Is it the Freddie DeBoer back channel? And they go, yeah, well, this is crazy. I mean, I'm, you know, like, or do they, are they true believers? I mean, what is, this is a big question, but what is it like? It's, you know, I'm, I'm just generalizing broadly, but it's just, it's, it's incredibly classist, even though it's mm. supposedly this, you know, the left is this socialist anarchist scene that's all about the masses rising up against the elites that's anti-billionaire anti-millionaire anti-corporate in rhetoric and you know in symbols you know you know back at the intercept office you know they, they you know it's the, the intercept was funded by this billionaire one of the richest billionaires in the world pierre omidyar founder of ebay one of the biggest investors in paypal you know has a huge vc fund that backs tons of companies you know that he rented us uh what looks like a looked like a hedge fund office. It was this, you know, gilded tower overlooking all of New York City by Union Square Park, and you know, despite all these privileges, um, you know, people who mostly went to private schools who grew up with a silver spoon in their mouth, without any kind of, I think, self awareness, would talk about how all billionaires are evil and and mm. and draw the hammer and sickle and. Anarchist A symbol with a circle on the whiteboards in the office. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like there's, there's no cognitive dissonance here. That you're, we're all, all of our salaries are funded by this mega capitalist billionaire. Maybe, maybe we should just kind of acknowledge that. Not that we have to be pro billionaire, but it just the 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 level of hey, you know, of, of virtue signaling against the rich but being funded by this billionaire, it's just, it's, it's just never kind of got smoothed over. And in a lot of these circles, you know, I've gone to a lot of private events and fundraisers and parties with these kind of mega far left folks who are big writers or foundation folks or activists or politicians. You know, it's a, it's a very, I think, which is similar to some conservative spaces that are more extreme. There's a very us versus them. Like we're fight, we're mm. like, no matter how, popular these ideas are like they made defund the police and abolish the police mainstream in the media they made they helped you know motivate these riots in 2020 they they really captured the culture you you watch any of these advertisements or major tv shows on netflix you see a lot of these leftist values being reflected but they still act like they're this entrenched minority with no power at all you know like oh mm. it's us against society rather than no you've kind of won on all of the big issues you know 
drugs you can buy anywhere in California. They're yeah. not, you're not going to get I mean, prosecuted. It's gay, gay marriage is, 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 is legal. You know, it's, it, there's no issues with interracial dating or marriage. If, if anything, it's valorized in society. The, the left on cultural issues have won. And in, in many ways, that's a good thing. But they still act like there's this entrenched minority under the, you know, boot of, of fascism. It's like, really? Like, what, are we living in the same America? I I don't know if it's the first stall. How did that work out, test or that everybody wants to conceive of themselves as the epic hero going up against big forces? It's it's an odd time though. It's an odd time to have those sorts of points of connection now between the CIA and the FBI and lefty politics, as you've written about, and how you know there there is some sort of alignment there on the right. I'm. I want a thought on this. Maybe you have no mm. thoughts because you are <laughs> doing your shoe leather. Um, has, because one of the things that you you've done that might have caused some of your friends to turn their back is that if you have a big story and Tucker Carlson wanted you on, you would talk about it. Uh, he has subsequently been fired by Fox. He's doing his own thing. Has he lost his mind? I mean, that's the question. Like, what's going on? <laughs> Is this big story? I I don't know him personally. I've never talked to him personally other than going on a show. I don't know. I can't psychoanalyze him. What I can gather is that he's very angry and bitter. I think people who Mm. are are canceled or or hurt lash out in certain ways, even though Mm. maybe he's not the most sympathetic figure because he has lots of money and power still. He's still someone who's got kind of screwed, as I understand, by Fox. I mean, they scapegoated him and, and fucked him over in a lot of ways. And maybe because of that, is having people like Larry Sinclair on, which does, did not seem like a credible interview at all. You know, the, this uh, the, Obama the, gay the, sex thing. Like, it's, yeah, I, I don't the, know. I, I, you know, I, but we we all have misfires in our careers. He's told a lot of noble truths and done a lot of interesting things, but perhaps is messed up too. You know, and 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 positioned his journalism out of anger. You know, out of out of resentment. I think you actually, I think you gave a good insight on on what might have happened to a degree because whatever one thinks of him, I think he, in his independent venture right now, um, has just gotten kind of weird. And why are you interviewing a non-credible guy who says he had gay sex with Obama in 1999? Just to what end is any of this other than just gay baiting? I guess it's weird, but I do think what you said is true in that it is psychologically deforming for people to go through these defenestrations that happen at scale with him. It's an interesting situation because I think so much of his public performance is about how it doesn't affect him. And he's in Maine and wearing plaid and, you know, building things with his hands. And at the end of the day, he's a human being and he's got an ego. And to what you're saying, I think that has to have, that has to have an impact, but it's just interesting to see it all, to see it all play out. And it's been, um, just a, quite a, quite a surprising result. Um, it's, I mean, the most, one of the most painful things you can go through is being ostracized from your community, being cast out from your tribe. Tucker being cast out of Fox from all the kind of the lawsuits, the little gossipy tidbits that have been dribbling out. It looks painful. I mean, Again, maybe he's not the most sympathetic character out there because he's got a lot of privileges that other folks don't. But this whole thing looks terrible. I mean, he got backstabbed by basically all of his colleagues and by the upper management of Fox 
for still kind of unclear reasons. Maybe he flew too close to the sun. Maybe he was too powerful. He couldn't be controlled by the Murdochs. He really kind of, he never really beat the, the same Republican orthodoxy drum as most of the other hosts. Mm. And he became cast out because of that. And despite all the rating success, you know, he didn't collect the same advertiser dollars. I mean, it seems like there was a lot of factors there, but they screwed him and they screwed him hard. And from what I gather, he's very upset about that. Yeah, I mean, that's that makes a lot of sense. I also think the 2022 election didn't go the direction of some of the candidates he pumped. So there's probably uh, something related to that that informed their decision making, that informs his loss of status. Um, I'm just watching it play out and it's all it's all very surprising. I guess the last question to ask you, because I'm writing about it currently eh, from my own perspective what do you make of this current uh, Musk, not Twitter anymore, X situation? I'm right now writing about this weird reality we're in where it's really hard to go viral. I looked at your Bernie Man piece and I thought that's an impressive amount of tweets these days for a link because links in general, especially Substack. Oh, really? I thought I got like zero. I'm, I'm you know, that's the shadow ban on, on Substack is... It's bad for our business. <laughs> yeah. So the yes, yes. So how do you reconcile all of that and think about all of that? Um, I'll just say that I'm not one of these people who wakes up out of bed in the morning with some very strong opinion on Elon Musk, like a lot of people in journalism seem to now have. And yeah. I see, you know, I think that Twitter before he bought it was terrible. And yeah. terrible for some of the reasons that you've revealed in the way it was trying to manufacture consent uh, informed by the government. I don't think that's good. But at the same time, I, I don't love as a businessman <laughs> how hard it is to go viral. And it does seem to be suppre uh, suppressing speech in a way. So what's your take on it? It's It's just a mix. Like Elon's made some improvements to the sites, to the site. And he's also made it much worse. He's so impulsive that he makes very bad decisions with respect to Twitter slash X. And yes, he, he's hypocritical in terms of his supposed free speech absolutism while shadow banning, I think, Substack particularly hard. I, you know, maybe certain writers, definitely some news organizations reportedly. I mean, this is these are terrible decisions. All that being said, he's still genuinely fascinating i just i find like people who adore him and cling on to his every word kind of pathetic and i i find the people who hate every strand of his being equally pathetic you know he's he's a mixed bag he's a, a genuinely interesting person like this latest fight with the adl it's just such a yeah. crazy mix where it's like elon's definitely lying in a lot of it like claiming that the adl is the reason for anti-Semitism on Twitter is crazy. Like there's no evidence of that, <laughs> but he's also the only person in the elite in, in society that's willing to take on the ADL. The ADL is, you know, has a, a long history of very bad faith conduct of, 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 crit of criticizing any kind of Palestinian activists as motivated just by anti-Semitism of, you know, kind of bullying uh, speech around issues surrounding Israel uh, and really squelching debate and, and calling for more censorship I mean, really, no one challenges this group, and Elon did. So Elon's doing it with some lies that 
are despicable. You know, I, I don't agree with a lot of the things he's saying about the ADL, but the fact that he's challenging them is genuinely interesting. No one else is doing that. So just as a spectator, as someone who's observing this whole thing, I just take it for what it is. You know, Elon's doing some interesting, fascinating things. We're, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll be part of the history books. Uh, that some of it, which is positive, some of which is probably negative. Yeah, I feel similarly. I, I will say that suppressing links to my Substack is an act of anti-Semitism, and I will not stand for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, additionally, yeah, no, I hate the ADL. I mean, this is this is an absurd organization. Who made Jonathan Greenblatt the Pope of what's offensive to Jewish people? This is an absurd. This is just an absurd premise that so it is this thing again, Lee, that you're pointing out where it's somebody had to say it. Somebody had to to, to fight this absurdity where corporations just I, I OK, when I said I hate the ADL, I did literally mean it, but I should actually explain what I mean. I, I hate that their that their methodology for fighting the classic anti-Semitic tropes is we need to amass all the major corporations and harness our financial power to crush yeah. any dissent. This right, is right. inherently absurd. This yeah. is insane. This is completely oh, insane. Almost like they're trying to conjure an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. It's bonkers. It's bonkers that, again, to what you were saying, does anybody have any sense of self-reflection or self-awareness? I mean, that how the how can that be how you go about that? particular mission how can it not be instead hey we give a statement about something we don't like or we criticize this person or that person when you're overtly out in the open saying advertisers corporations must come together to crush this person for saying the jews have too much financial power and power over the media i mean that's just i can't even my brain breaks i feel like no, i'm watching like, an, a linguistic mc escher drawing <laughs> it's it's like it's what we're seeing in so many of these speech debates where there's a group that wants to exert political power and political control and they use a very kind of laudable cause you know like hey you know we're all worried about covid but to say that we can't criticize any of these covid policies otherwise we're going to be you know anyone who criticizes these policies is leading to killing people are are, are trying to get more people killed of COVID, you know, it's this, it's extreme overreach. You know, anyone who criticizes some of the policies around the Ukraine-Russia war are, you know, in the thrall of Russia and attempting to help Putin. It's like, just like for this debate, it's like anyone who has some very reasoned, nuanced criticism of, of Israel and Israel's policies, suddenly that makes them an anti-Semite. I mean, it's just these overblown reaches to control and suppress speech that, that is problematic. And, you know, for Elon to push back against that, although not doing it in a very articulate way, and in some ways actually doing it in a very dishonest uh, way. So, again, so there's, there's always yeah. this asterisk. And when he, whenever Elon's brought up, it's like, all right, <laughs> don't want to don't want to like endorse everything he's doing or, at all. But, you know, there's there's a little bit of, of me that's cheering him on, on on some of these these fights. It's just also there's part of me that's ex extremely finds a lot what he says and does very distasteful so it's i don't like i said it's a mix yeah you kind of fear that sometimes when he's prosecuting an argument that you favor that you think is badly needed but you almost fear that he's going to stigmatize it by handling it in such a ham-fisted way um right. 
and that's that's often a a sense that i have but you sir are not ham-fisted uh you're great at what you do i am very thankful that you've taken the time because for those who don't know i mean investigative journalism is not easy and to put out two pieces a week i mean it's just an insane schedule you've got going there but you're you're maintaining the base and uh, I just wish you all the best of luck with the Substack. It's fantastic. Ethan, thanks so much. And, you know, if we had any disputes, we can settle them on the tennis court that <laughs> may or may not happen. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You might be shifting rightly. We might be going to the driving range. You know, we'll see. We'll see yeah. where we're going <laughs> to. We'll see. I'm down to start pretending that we're going to do that instead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down to pretend that as well, man. Thanks so much.